if you would, to Luke chapter 18. As Mark had shared earlier, this is our last parable in a series on the parables and a challenging one at that. Um, short and punchy. While you're turning there, this week as I was preparing, um, I was reminded of my shop teacher in high school. I cannot for the life of me remember his name. I know it begins with Mr. <laughs> That's a, as far as I go. Um, but I'll never forget him. He, was, he taught my woodshop class and he was missing digits on his right hand. Always makes a guy nervous when you're going into the cabinet making class and your teacher doesn't have fingers. <clears throat> but it was because of that mistake that he did not want us to make the same regrettable error. And he pounded the drum of safety. He instilled in us a healthy fear and a respect for what was important. And this came from a diverse, uh, many diverse means, but he educated us about the risks of how dangerous the equipment we would use was. He told us sobering and descriptive, probably exaggerated stories. He made us watch countless safety videos, raw and unfiltered. It became all those fun stories on camping trips of who's got the grossest story. <clears throat> and he continually looked over our shoulders when we were working as his apprentices. And, and what I found out later is I got to know him more as a friend was that his greatest fear was not our introduction to the machinery. His greatest fear was our familiarity with it over time. That you get to a place of comfort that becomes dangerous. You lose a level of fear and respect for things that are very important. And in a similar way, this parable today has a similar danger. Those of us in this room who would consider ourselves evangelical Christians run the risk of a dangerous familiarity. As descendants of the Reformation and the great Martin Luther, we're all too familiar with precious truths that we should not ever lose sight of. They're truths we preach every Sunday. We are familiar with the danger of self-righteousness and justification by works. We've heard and, under and understand the importance of justification by faith alone. And how the cross of Christ and the empty tomb are the only basis for our forgiveness. Yet familiarity can become dangerous. And if we don't have a healthy fear and respect for what is important, we can make some dangerous mistakes. And I believe this simple parable today is a means of God's grace to remind us of some of those dangers. And to, to point us on our way with safety and with joy. So I want to read this to you. This is um, 
Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is God's word to us. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A simple parable with two main characters brings great warning and clarity to us about who God justifies. Let's begin with this first character on the scene, this, this Pharisee. Both of these men coming to pray to God. Now we know from Luke, in verse, chap, uh, in verse same chapter, verse 9, that, that this man is his focus. This is why he told this parable. It says that he told this parable to some, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So we, we know the purpose of this parable was to expose this sort of man. And this seems obvious to us as good Protestants. Jesus was always going after these guys. We always like a good story where works righteousness is run down. But to anyone hearing this parable in the first century, it would have been absolutely shocking. And for many of us coming out of the Reformation and having a, a hatred for workspace righteousness, we can, we can miss some of the shock and awe of this experience if we don't understand what was going on. These Pharisees would have been very respectable men. We can dehumanize them as, as symbols of self-righteousness, which many of them were, but, but these were men who were, who were greatly respected in their culture. They would have been men you would go to for wise counsel. They gave their lives to discovering and discerning God's law for God's people. They gave great attention not only to the teachings, but they oriented their lives in ways that would honor God based on His Commands. These things this man is doing are things God has commanded him to do. The things that he is, he is turned off by are the things that God says are not good to do. So this is a faithful 
man. This is an obedient man. And this was a zealous man. He not only was doing what the law required, he was doing above and beyond what the law required. In verse 12 it says, I fast twice a week. Well, there was only a command to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And yet the Pharisees had incorporated a cycle of fasting twice a week. Above and beyond what the law required. He says that he tithed everything that he got. There were only certain things that a a person had to tithe. And yet he says, anything I get, I give God a portion of first. This was a zealous man. Doing more than the law required. Living a life of moral integrity, giving himself to the service of others by seeing and understanding and gleaning from God's law so that he could teach and disciple and train other people so they would also honor Yahweh. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, that man leaves without being justified. That would have been an absolute shock. No one would have understood. Needless to say how the story goes on, that the one who is justified is this, this nasty, dirty, despised tax collector. So what was so bad about this guy? As we see in verse 9, he trusted in himself. That he was righteous. And he held others in contempt. And so we get a picture into this guy's prayer life. And interestingly, on this particular part of the parable, the passage says little about his posture, but there's quite a bit of content in his prayer. Verse 11, we see his posture as he's a man standing by himself. It's safe to assume he didn't want to be unclean by associating with sinners. Self-righteousness has a tendency to put us in an exclusive class. Superior to all the rest. And that begins to spill over in his prayer. And then we see his prayer. Starts on a good note, but quickly he becomes self-absorbed. He says, God, I thank you. But then five times in two verses, he uses the first person singular pronoun. I, 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 I. I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Certainly not like this tax collector. I fast. I tithe. How is this even giving thanks? I mean, think about it for a minute. It's it's wedding season. You've, You've been to weddings. You've had a wedding. Or you've bought a gift for someone at a wedding, I would imagine, most of you. 
There's that dreadful piece about thank you letters. Some people love. That's a spiritual gift. I don't know how that works, but um, that's a grueling process, writing all those thank you letters from all those people that love you and care for you and build into you. Um, But what if you got a, a gift for a bride? And she wrote you a thank you letter. And it said, I thank you that my wedding was the best ever. My flowers were the prettiest. My dress was the most spectacular. My appetizer should be on every restaurant's menu. Not like those other weddings. I mean, how crazy would that be? And yet, this is exactly what this Pharisee is doing. He, he says, I thank you, O God. And then it's all about how awesome he is. There's no thanksgiving to God. In a way, he's almost passive-aggressively telling God how much God should be thankful for him. There's no thanksgiving for his character. God, I thank you that you're growing patience in my life. God, I thank you that you're teaching me generosity or self-control or humility. No thanks for God's mercy. Probably assume God owes him because he's so good. This isn't even a prayer. It's more of a self-promotion proclamation and a list of his credentials. And if that's not bad enough, he looks around and he recognizes how appropriate it is for him to be there and how inappropriate everyone else is in his surroundings. But you know, prayer has a way of exposing our hearts, doesn't it? And I believe in God's providence, he uses prayer in this passage to help us get insight into the heart of these two men. And here we find this man completely exposed. So what can we learn from this Pharisee? What are some of the things that might, have, might be familiar to us that would cause us to, to be in danger, that we could, we could learn some ways to remain safe from this man? I think one thing we can learn is although this man may have had every good intention, like a distracted woodworker with his hands near a blade, this man's eyes were focused on the wrong thing. This man was trusting in himself, not on the mercies of God. There's no mention of God's mercy, only of his own performance. And I would ask if you realize this is a real potential danger in your own life. Do you recognize a familiarity with the mercy of God can tempt you to trust in yourself? We are born to go down this road. Spurgeon says we have a vitality about A temptation towards self-righteousness. We long to be accepted by others based on our performance. 
And think about it for a few minutes. As children, we long to be accepted by our parents. And we perform in ways that will secure their acceptance and their love. As we grow older, many of us, not by obedience, but by disobedience, will work to gain the approval of our peers. Performing certain behaviors so that others will accept us. For some, it's academic approval. So that we'll be recognized. That we put on the tassel and the garb and we get recognized as the valedictorian. The hard worker. Worthy of approval. Or athletic approval. That we get scholarships to whatever college we want to go to. Or cultural acceptance by the cars we drive or the clothes we wear or the devices that we have. Or promotions at work. Others recognizing how well we perform and how much we deserve to be recognized and rewarded. We we all have this desire to perform so that others will recognize and accept us and approve of us. And when we grow overly familiar with the mercy of God, it will trickle into our faith as well. We can lose sight of God's mercy and assume His approval comes from our performance. I don't know that this man began there. He may have ended there over time. Just as we can when we lose sight of the mercies of God. It's the outside working in rather than the inside working out. That that outwardly, if we can perform in such a way to win God's approval... then we're in a right position. The gospel puts that on its head. That that we come, as we see with this tax collector, that we come with nothing to bring. And God grants us mercy. And like this man who had places he could go in his Bible to, to give you reason as to why he lived a certain way. We ourselves can have spiritual disciplines in our lives. We can have behaviors God calls us to, but that we've misplaced. That become means for us to establish acceptance and approval by God, rather than being the outflow of our gratitude of what he's already done. All good and necessary things, but not the basis of why God accepts us. So here's a couple questions you can ask yourself to see if you're in danger of being too familiar with God's mercy. Someone were to ask you how you're doing spiritually, what would go through your mind before you answer? Would you would you take a scale of what you feel God should, what what God would want you to do? During the week, how many times he wants you to read your Bible, how many times he wants you to pray, how long he'd want you to pray, how many people you should tell Jesus about. And then put that on a scale of how, how you performed. And if you did really well, do you, would you communicate to a person that you're doing really well? And if you got busy and things didn't work out so well for you, would you think that you 
we're losing your position with God. Might be a good indicator if you've lost sight of God's mercy. If you committed a grievous sin and then soon after someone came and asked you to pray for them, would you believe in your heart of hearts that God would really hear your prayer? Or if you committed some grievous sin, would you have any confidence in sharing your faith with someone that same day? What would the motive of those answers be? And this is not to say these things aren't important. They have a role to play. We want to be people who share our faith. We want to be people who who live in God's word and who, who pray to God and who live lives of obedience, but they are not the basis of why God accepts us. And if we get those categories confused, we're in danger. Many other questions I could ask, but I'll move on. If we want to remain in a safe place, we cannot lose sight of God's mercy. We cannot look at our behavior from the outside and assume that that assures a good standing with God on the inside. And in God's kindness, we have another example, a good example of what we should do rather than what not to do. But it's a tax collector, just as shocking as the rejection of the Pharisee by God and his forgiveness. It would also be shocking that this man was accepted. Tax collectors were despised by the people. They were men, Jewish men, who had sold their souls to Rome. Rome would require temple or would require taxes from from the people in the communities. And so they had a certain amount of tax that they required. And these men would bid on certain regions to collect those taxes. And if they won the bid, they would go in and they could could lay claim on any amount of taxation that they wanted and skim off the top from what they gave Rome. And these Jewish compromised men would go to the houses of other ethnic Jews, their kinsmen, and there might be a poor family without food on the table and without money for rent, and they would take it all, whatever they had. They were despised. They were sellouts. They were despicable. They were compromised. This man may have visited some of the people in this very temple court that previous week and had taken the money they had to feed their children. And where we saw little of the Pharisee's posture and a lot about his prayer, you see quite the opposite here. You see a lot about this man's posture in a very short prayer. We see this man is standing far off. Realizing his unworthiness to be in the midst of God's people or in God's temple courts. This man was 
keenly aware about how unworthy he was to be there. Not only was he standing far off, we see he was not willing to lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. He, he loathed himself, self, self-loathing, self-deprecation for all the, the terrible things he had done. And he knew there was no grounds he had to come to where he was. And he knew in that moment his only plea was for mercy. A gift to be given that he did not deserve. A man who says, I have compromised my kinsmen, I've compromised the God who made covenant with my people, and I've sold my soul to this world, and I have nothing to bring. The only hope I have is for mercy. God would give me a forgiveness that I do not deserve. The English translation does not serve us well here when it says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a definite article there. Be merciful to me, God, the sinner. Where this Pharisee saw everyone around him as inferior, this man says, I don't see anyone else, and I don't know how anyone could be worse than me. I am the sinner, and I am in need of mercy. And if God turns down my request, I am done. And Jesus says, this man leaves justified. And the point Jesus is making is that forgiveness is not granted to us based on our behavior, but on our brokenness over our sin and a humble plea for God's mercy. It's not about our behavior. It's about our brokenness and a humble plea for mercy. It's about our posture, not about our performance. This is a great example to us of humility, which Jesus says at the end of this parable, that those who are humble, God will exalt. It's great humility in coming, recognizing you have nothing to bring. Uh, Martin Luther said, the only thing we bring to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. It's all we have in our bag that we bring. Whether it's the self-righteous works of a Pharisee or the rebellion of a tax collector, it's all the same in God's eyes and it all is in deep need of mercy. And I think for many of us, this tax collector is where we most closely relate. I think we can find temptations to self-righteousness, but any of us who came to Christ later in life knows what it means to appeal for mercy, recognizing you have nothing to offer. But even as a, as a forgiven tax collector, there, there, there are some unique temptations. And I just want to name three. 
One is, as we, we talked about already with the, the Pharisee, even if you were a tax collector saved, similar to the, the, the prodigal story, we can quickly lose sight of God's mercy and begin to base our standing on our behavior. We can, we can move into a category of self-righteousness. That's always a danger that's ever-present in the human life. And we have to continue to return to God's mercies. But sin is subtle and deceptive. And sometimes, another way we can be tempted is that we can become a different sort of Pharisee. You know, instead of the Pharisee looking down at the tax collector and saying, glad I'm not like this guy. We can, we can value the humility and the, the breast beating of the sinner who just owns his sin. And we can say, I'm thankful I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee. But you're still being a Pharisee. You, you haven't really understood the mercies of God. You've just changed like a chameleon to a different color of self-righteousness. And that's a danger. But a third one that I want to spend a little bit of time on um, that I think is also subtle and, and dangerous is that even if we don't fall into the, the first two categories, we can still be just as self-absorbed as a Pharisee. This guy was just stuck on himself. And I think this is the unique, oh, not unique, this is, this is not unique, this is, um, this is definitely a way that I struggle. I can certainly relate to this temptation. But even though you might not be being a Pharisee, you can be just as self-absorbed. Um, because, because rather than giving inappropriate attention to your good works, which you don't really have, so you can't boast about them, you can give an inappropriate attention to your sin. See, this man would have been seen as a broken man, a burdened man, a man who was beating his chest, a, a, a clear sign that he, he was going through some trouble. He was having a hard time. But he left justified. And I fear for many of us, the chest-beating, sin-aware Tax collectors can shortchange the joy and the glory that can be found when we, we remind ourselves of God's mercy. And if we don't, we're just going to linger around like a Pharisee, just pointing, instead of pointing at our good works, we're just going to talk about all the bad that we, that we do. But when you realize you are the sinner... It's easy to hang your head. It's easy to not look to heaven. It's easy to beat yourself up. But that's not where the story ends. That's only the first part of the journey up Mount Calvary. At the end of that road, there's a Savior. 
who justifies us. A perfect sacrifice and a just judge who sends us back down the hill forgiven. And there's joy to be found. And I guarantee you, if you met this man after Jesus sent him away justified, he would have had a different story to tell. The people observed him coming down the hill would not have the same story as the people who observed him going up the hill. A man weeping and beating himself who can't even lift his head is walking down a mountain with his head held high and a song in his mouth and a bounce in his step because he's justified. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's the mercy of God. How many of us live as the sinners beating our chest but fail to finish the journey up the hill to new mercies? There's joy in that journey. And God wants us to drink it deeply. He wants us to taste and see that He's good. Better news does not exist. And it would not please our Father for us to leave a passage like this, more aware of our sin than we are of His mercies. Both of these men were in deep need of God's mercies. So if I were to give you any homework, this is what I'd tell you to do. This is some of my self-care. wake up and you take a good look in the mirror and you have a little word with yourself and you say self we need to have a little talk here's the deal regardless of what you try to tell me here's the truth on your best day There is nothing you can do to earn God's mercy. On your best day, there's nothing you can do to earn it. Doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. And on your worst day, there is nothing you can do to forfeit God's mercies. So self Get over yourself. And let's get on with praising God for His mercy. Let us get busy praising God for His mercies. And the joy that that brings. And the reason we can celebrate, the reason we can find mercy found by the prayer of this tax collector. The irony here, this this Pharisee who was only called to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. He's fasting twice a week. So he's, he's increased what he thought the law required. But it's interesting, this short little prayer 
probably only happened once by this tax collector. The word there for mercy, it's not the common word for mercy. It's the same word used for the mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies. It was the, the gold cover on the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the mercy seat. It was where one day a year on the Day of Atonement, a high priest would make a sacrifice. And he would go in to atone for the sins of God's people. And he would sprinkle blood on the covenant. And, and within the, the ark, the Ten Commandments were there as a reminder that, that we had failed and the blood had to cover for our disobedience. And this tax collector says, if there's any mercy to be found, it's in that room with the blood on that altar. And Jesus, just a few chapters later, becomes that high priest. He, he becomes the one that goes into his father. He becomes the one that sheds his own blood to take our place, to offer us mercy, to grant us the justification he gladly sends this man away with. And he does it with his own blood. And he does it once and for all. And that, that curtain was torn so that we can have complete access with God. So that even on our best day, when we think we're awesome, the mercy of God will spare us what we deserve. Or on our worst day, the mercy of God will, will spare us and will keep us in the place that we need to be in. And so we find in these two characters a need for mercy. And unless you share similarities with both, you fit into one. And you yourself also need mercy and the grace of God and the gospel of Christ. And there's a promise that he who humbles himself, she who humbles herself will be lifted up. And to acknowledge either the, the good deeds that hinder us or the disobedience that hinders us to, to humble ourselves and confess that, that we need God and his mercy. And that we can come down the mountain with joy on our lips that we have been justified.